Yeah, I feel like if you really want to do something, unless you're 110% sacrificed and ready to sacrifice everything, I didn't have no cool clothes. I didn't have a cool car. I was poor, but I just wanted to play the drums, not for chicks, not for any other reason, but that's what I loved, you know? So, I mean, anything I'm involved with is because I absolutely love it. I've learned trust the gut. Like if I, if my gut and my intuition tells me no, it's a no. But everything happens for a reason, and I and I believe in that that saying, uh, "Win or learn," you know. And you know, a mistake isn't a mistake. You learn from it, and and I and now I'm here to say, you know, like I do trust my gut 110%. That's Travis Barker, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, what's up, you guys? How you doing? What's happening? Greetings. My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. And welcome, or welcome back, to my podcast, the show where I get intimate uh, and I go long form, in-depth, with some of the world's most intriguing thought leaders and positive change makers all across the globe. I uh, really appreciate you guys tuning in today. Uh, it means a lot to me. Uh, thank you so much for subscribing to the show on iTunes, for sharing the show with your friends and on social media, for supporting my work through Patreon and through the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. Really appreciate all of that very, very much. Uh, did I mention I got Travis Barker on the podcast today? Super excited about that. Hold on, can you guys hear that rain? It's crazy. I've lived in Los Angeles like, I don't know, over 20 years. I have never seen a winter like this. It's been raining like crazy the past week, like sideways, pelting rain. Everything's turning green. It looks like Ireland out here. It's awesome. We really need it, but I'm not used to it, man. It's unbelievable. In any event, I'm in my new uh, container studio space, and it's a little bit loud with the rain. So apologies if It's a little distracting, nothing I can do about that. In any event, Travis Barker, again, super pumped to have him on the show today. Uh, You guys know this guy, right? Prolific, super talented uh, rock and roll drummer, but maybe if you haven't heard of him, let me recap it for you. Uh, Recognized by Rolling Stone as punk's first superstar drummer, Travis is a musician, he's a producer, Uh, he's an entrepreneur who rose to fame and perhaps you know him best as the drummer for the influential multi-platinum punk rock band Blink-182. And in fact, just this week, Blink-182 and thus Travis as well were nominated for their first Grammy for their latest album, California. So that's awesome. Congrats to everybody in Blink and Travis for that. Uh, Essentially, he's one of the most prolific rock drummers in the world. He's incredibly talented, skilled, accomplished, uh, hardworking, and really unique because he's very adept at essentially every musical genre, everything from punk to country, EDM, hip hop, jazz, and everything in between. Uh, In addition to what he does with Blink-182, this is a guy who has recorded or performed with uh, all kinds of artists like Eminem, Lil Wayne, uh, Slash, Mary J. Blige, Tom Morello, Steve Aoki, and uh, so many, many more. And he's also an entrepreneur. He's the founder of a clothing company called Famous Stars and Straps. He's got a record label called LaSalle Records. Uh, he's also an investor in a variety of cool businesses, including uh, Crossroads Kitchen, which is not only one of LA's best restaurants, it's perhaps the most uh, acclaimed vegan restaurant in the world. Uh, he's also a best-selling author. His memoir, Can I Say, is this incredibly raw, uh, vulnerable, honest, soul-bearing uh, chronicle of 
the highlights and the lowlights of you know what I think is a really remarkable human being's life, uh, including uh, the harrowing plane crash that nearly killed him and his traumatic road to recovery, which is something we spend a lot of time talking about uh, in the podcast today. In any event, super interesting cat, and I got a few more things I want to note about him before we delve into the conversation, but first. Brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. 
What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. All right, Travis Barker on the podcast today. Super excited about it for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is because there are so many interesting points of commonality and intersection that I have with him. Uh, a laundry list of things that I wanted to explore with him, everything from addiction and sobriety to his veganism, uh, his music career, of course, uh, his evolution as both a musician and a human being, uh, what it means to him to live a creative life on his own terms, and you know how he balances this rock star persona against parenting two young kids. Uh, I wanted to talk about his entrepreneurship, uh, his fitness regimen, which I know is very, very important to him. And the truth of the matter is, I only got through a few of these things uh, because we went so deep uh, and so thoughtful and intentional on just a select few items. So I want you guys to consider this part one of what I hope will be a multi-part conversation with Travis. Uh, this is just us getting to know each other a little bit. Uh, and it's really great. It came out wonderful. Travis is just such a conscious, uh, soulful, and uh, present human being. And I think it really comes across in this exchange. Um, and, you know, this is a conversation that I think pivots around a couple themes. Uh, it's about intuition. Uh, it's also about premonition. Uh, and it, it's a conversation about the importance of following your heart. And I think that's all I'm going to say about this one. So... Let's talk to Travis. Right on, man. Thanks so much for uh, coming over to do this with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have you done uh, Have you done very many podcasts? I did. Uh, are you familiar with On It? Yeah, yeah, yeah Aubrey. Yeah, Aubrey. Yeah. I, d I did uh -huh. Aubrey's podcast. Did Aubrey's? Uh -huh. Yeah. Was that in person or was that like a Skype thing? Nah, it was over Skype. Yeah. It was pretty cool. Cool, man. Well, good to have you here. That is that the only other one you've done? Yeah, I don't really do a bunch of them. All right, cool. Well, yeah. that's that's good. That's exciting for me, man, because yeah. uh, I'm really super uh, inspired by your story, and there's a lot of points of intersection that we can explore, and I'm just pumped to be able to uh, hijack you and force you to answer my questions. Cool. <laughs> I'm game. I'm game. You know, I was wrapping my head around around kind of, you know, what you're about and who you are. And, and I think something that's super interesting about, you know, your, the musical uh, aspect of what you do is that obviously you're known as a drummer. You're a very prolific, talented, uh, accomplished drummer, but it's really a lot more than that because your sort of persona or, you know, I hate that word brand, but like, you know, who you are is really much larger than that. Like you have this very kind of creative entrepreneurial approach to what you do that allows you to kind of expand outside like the four walls of a band and has allowed you to like collaborate with all these amazing musicians across all different genres, as well as, you know, get involved in all different types of businesses. Like it's a very dynamic approach to your profession and your career, right? Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, I've, 
I've kind of along the way of playing music as a symptom of playing music, I've been able to express myself and be um, successful in a couple different creative outlets, which has been just amazing. Never, never with the intention to make money or to be successful. It was always like, wow, I love doing this. Uh-huh. And if I could make it make sense to where I don't lose money doing it, cool. And it could just be a hobby. And those hobbies have turned into, I guess, what you call a business now. Right. So it's so it's really leading with your heart, leading with your gut, leading with your instinct. Yeah. Always. I mean, anything I'm involved with is because I absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. I, I've learned like I've learned trust the trust the gut like if i if my if my gut my gut and my intuition tells me no it's a no where did you learn that like where does that come from i feel like i learned the hard way Uh uh-huh a little bit you know there's there's certain there's big there's big pivotal decisions in my life where um i've made the wrong decision like making the making the decision because of the paycheck or as opposed to the the creative uh fulfillment of it yeah, or I guess just I when I look back at times, I was like, whoa, I knew that didn't feel right, and I still went ahead and did it. Uh-huh. And I just go, why? You right. know, and but everything happens for a reason, and I and I believe in that that saying, uh, win or learn, you right. know? And, you know, a mistake isn't a mistake. You learn from it, and, and, I, and now I'm here to say, you know, like I do trust my gut 110%. It seems that, you know, to me, in kind of reviewing your story and, and knowing a little bit about you know, where you came from, that a lot of it tracks back to, you know, something your mom told you, you know, shortly before she passed. I mean, she passed, you you were pretty young, right? Like just before you started high school? Yeah, it was a day before high school. Uh Uh-huh. And what what was it that she said to you? She said, no matter what, follow your dreams and play the drums. Like, don't stop playing. Like, that's the one thing. I think that's the one thing, like, I think as a child, and I've seen it even with my own kids, it's like if you give them the option that they don't have to do anything, they're not going to do anything. Right. <laughs> so for me, they were very disciplined in like, you've got to practice X amount of hours a day. You've got to, you've got to be productive. You've got to put time in with you know your instrument, which was the drums for me. I mean, I sang with like I sang in madrigals and in, in school and piano, but nothing got me like the drums did. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a portion of my life where I was like 14, 15, and I thought I wanted to be a professional skateboarder, but I was way, way better at playing drums than skateboarding. So if my mother and father wouldn't have made me practice, I would have, when she died, there would have been nothing for her to say, do that, you know? And right. she, you know, I started just banging on things at the age of four, and she's like, I think he's a drummer. You know, right. I, so I really just the pots like, and pans kind of thing, right? Yeah, like pots and pans and. But she showed up to support that, like it got you some lessons and a kit and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, she got me a teacher at the age of four that taught me how to read. And I was really good at sight reading. I was really good at just reading music in general. I would go to drum competitions and there were sight reading competitions where, you know, I was like five or six and they'd put a sheet of music ahead of you you've never seen in front of you and you just have to kill it you know you have to go uh-huh. there and do it and i was really good at sight reading and then so you picked up learning how to read music at how old yeah five and six years wow old. yeah that's I, almost like some crazy past life thing right like yeah. you were able to just tap right into it like that yeah it was weird and no one played music in my family nobody uh-huh. it was just like i just understood note value really young and i think it was a, a combination of that and they just pushed it on me really young like if you're gonna do this learn it right 
And then once I learned how to read, it was really, no one really could teach you how to play rock and roll mm-hmm. or teach you how to play to your favorite hip hop groups. Uh, you know, I had that same teacher that, that taught me when I was a kid named Ed Will. He just taught me jazz basics, like learn how to read charts. And then I just listened to everything. I just so remember. after that, it's just, you know, whatever, whatever is like getting you excited and then playing it over and over and over again and trying to mimic it. Yeah, just uh-huh. listening to what I loved. And some of it would be like programmed drums, that a drum machine, it was a SP-1200, you know? Right. It was a, a MPC, and I would copy those drums from, from Beastie Boy records or uh-huh. Public Enemy records. So that was, uh, I was just exposed to everything. I was a really happily confused kid in a time where, in that in that time, I think you either listen to punk rock or you listen to hip hop or you were a goth kid or you were whatever i was confused and i was so thrilled with being confused and liking everything uh-huh. so southern california right like fontana yeah. area and we're talking about like late 1970s yeah i was born in 75 uh-huh right so early 80s maybe yeah. so then who so so who are your guys like who were the who were the big influences drummers or just drummers and bands Drummers in bands, is that what you said? Yeah. Um, Stuart Copeland, for sure. Uh, Dennis Chambers, he was like a fusion drummer. Right. Uh, Steve Gadd, Buddy Rich. A lot of jazz guys, really, uh-huh. for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Carter Bruford. It's interesting with the jazz, right? It makes me think yeah. of Whiplash. Yeah. Like when you watch that, do you tap into that emotionally? Like, do you see yourself in that character at all? Oh, so many, so many so many similarities uh-huh for me it was really when when i was in when i joined jazz band in high school my mom had just passed away i was really uh just shut down i really closed myself off from everything and everyone and i just focused on music it was weird just her words resonated with me and i just something told me to just be obsessed with drums like well it's a beautiful gift that she gave you, you yeah know, the permission to chase your dream. I mean, what more, you know, what more do you want from a parent, right? And their their belief and their conviction that you can do it. Like that's just, you know, it's a beautiful way for her to pass and and to, you know, sort of bequeath that to you. Yeah. And And then for you to really be able to hear it and take that and run with it. Yeah, especially in a time where you couldn't go. I remember going to my counselors, I think they start talking to you in 11th grade and they're like, well, what are you gonna do? you going to go to college? And uh-huh. I was like, my dad and my family, we don't have money for college. And frankly, I didn't what, have... What did what did, uh, what'd your dad do? He worked at Kaiser Steel. He was a steel worker. Uh-huh. Um, and we just, we didn't have a ton of money. We were, you know, we, we got by. And for me, and I didn't have the grades. Once my mom died, I was really just getting by. Right. All I was focused on was drums. So, so you're like a skater, stoner kid, or what kind of, like, what crowd were you hanging in? Not by that time. By the time, I think when my mom passed away, I stopped skateboarding. It was kind of like, I really, like, laser eye focus on drumming. Mm-hmm. It just, something clicked immediately. Uh, and that's all I, that's all I focused on. And when I, I remember having those conversations where like, are you going to go to college? What are you going to major? And I was like, I'm going to be a professional drummer. And they're mm-hmm. like... What are you talking about? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I just want to tour. That's all I want to do. I don't care if I'm poor, as long as I have enough money to eat and sleep somewhere. That's my only goal, you know. And I, 
I, f- I almost felt guilty at that point to dream of anything more significant than that. It was just like, mm-hmm. do what I love, somehow find a way to get paid for it, and that's it. And they just counselor after counselor would laugh at me and just be like, you are an idiot. Yeah. You know? Have you gone uh, back to your high school to see any of those guys? <laughs> no, nah, I've, I've donated some like musical instruments and uh-huh. stuff. I don't think any of the same, you know, faculty is there, but... Uh, but that was almost even more motivation to go harder and mm-hmm. just be like, there is, you know, I started to learn there is no path to get to where I want to go. I have to create it. And I just, I can't, I can't take, I can't take no for an answer. I just got to be obsessed. You, yeah. You got to want it. You have to be obsessed. And you know, the, the part, the piece I think that's missing from what you just explained is is having like an incredible work ethic, you know, which I think is a characteristic of, of, you know, your success. Like you work your ass off, man. You practice like crazy, right? That obsession translated into action. Yeah. And which it was funny, you know, my father wasn't involved with music, but he was a steel worker and there wasn't, even when he got home, he would be building a fence or he built our house with his own two hands. You know, it was, I saw his work ethic and it just, I applied it to what I do and what I love. And I, I still, you know, my friends go like, dude, what are you doing? You work like you're broke. And I'm like, nah, I work like I never want it to go away. And I, and I'm never, even with playing the drums as long as I have, I'm still learning. And I make the choice to still be learning. How do you keep it fresh though? I mean, it would be very easy to just get soft after all the success and just knowing like, yeah, I can pull it off. Like I don't have to, I don't have to sweat it. I guess keep being in competition with myself, just being better than I was yesterday. And, and and where does that drive come from, do you think? Like that's just innate? Just wanting to be great, wanting, wanting to keep learning, wanting to take it a step further. The days where I'm like, gosh, I don't even know what I'm going to practice today. It never happens. You know, I sit down, I put a metrodone on, I put a timer down. I usually practice for an hour at a time. Sometimes I'll do two to three hours a day and I'll just you know, uh, something will click and I'll be like, I've never thought of that before. Uh-huh. This pattern that I've done a million times, I've never thought about applying it to a, a different drum or or maybe some days I'm just working on speed or some days, you know, you can be right or left-handed with drumming. So some days I'll just focus on playing left-handed, not right. because just, just, just to do it. In a case of an emergency, I'll be able to pull it off live. And, and for me, it's like, I feel like it's the equivalent of a fighter. You train, you train, you train. You train for nine to 12 weeks before your fight. And then that night, you know, you just have fun. Mm-hmm. You, you've done you've done all the work you're supposed to do. I feel like the same way for a tour or, or just being prepared. I play so much when a gig comes up and they do come up all the time. Hey, Travel, we want you to play the Grammys with Eminem or we want you to play the Grammys with Pitbull or, or with Tom Morello and Chuck D. I'm just prepared because I'm playing every day, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's very much uh, sort of an athlete's mindset. You know, the training is, you know, the training is the life, right? And the the event, the competition, the game, whatever, is just a celebration of all the work that went into getting you there. Exactly. And And, and there's a lot of parallels between drumming and and athleticism, too, because it is so athletic. Yeah. And for drumming. for you. (laughs) Yeah, for drumming. Exactly. That's the reason I work out. Like, I kind of work Mm -hmm. out like a madman because I, number one, I want to be able to go up there and not get tired. And I want to be able to close my eyes and do whatever my mind wants to do. And I want my body to be able to react and, and, and be able to pull it off. Right. So I, I just, 
I, I feel like practicing all the time and being in shape, it's just, it just goes hand in hand with two hour sets with Blink. Cause it's really, it's really an endurance competition out there Yeah, I would <laughs> for, imagine. for Blink, you know, right. some of the other gigs I get, you know, like I just played with drum on, on a uh, Conan and that's just fun, but that comes to just, you know, being versatile and playing all types of music. But when it comes to playing a Blink gig or a gig with Transplants or Goldfinger or whoever I'm playing with at the time, uh, you know, on. yeah, you can't go out there and not practice for four weeks and not train and then go play a show and think you're going to have a great yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. It's not going to happen. You've done a really great job of, of kind of sharing that experience on Instagram and Snapchat with the stories. And I mean, it's either like you playing live just and you could see like just how incredibly athletic it is and it's just like oh my god you're just going for it or it's you like with the battle ropes working out or it's you with the kids right yeah Pretty much like and th this is what your life is about that's my life and and when you're talking about kind of like your work ethic and and how you still are so ardent about um you know practicing the drums every day like what an amazing example for your kids right it's like your kids are not growing up blue collar right so do you do you worry about like that kind of like that hunger like that grit that you know is a part of your success equation like how does that translate into you know parenting kids and and trying to make sure that they have you know an enthusiasm for something like you do yeah i mean i do worry about that i came from nothing and i was like don't let me get off track here but i was at the time when when I when I graduated from high school, and I had started like I got a tattoo on my leg, like one of my first tattoos, and my dad said, "If you ever get a tattoo, I'm gonna kick your ass and I'm gonna kick you out of the house." Uh -huh. So I got one, and uh, my sister Tamara actually ratted me out, like I had made uh -huh. her upset or something. She's like, "Trav has a tattoo," and sure enough, my dad's like, "Hey, pull down your sock." I'm like, "Why?" And he's like. I was told you have a tattoo and I was like, nah, nah, pal. And I pull it down. Of course the tattoo's there. So I didn't get whooped and I didn't get kicked out of the house. So I had figured out like, whoa, okay. They don't hurt. I love tattoos. So uh -huh. my, you know, I just loved the whole ideas of tattoos. So for me, it was like, my dad was always telling me, you have to have a plan B. You have to have a plan B. If you don't have a plan B, you're going to be fucked with, you know, all these job stoppers and everything. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to listen to my pops, but I'm going to flip it on them. If I have tattoos, I can't have a plan B. <laughs> so it was perfect right. for me. It was like, that's it. And my goal, you got to remember, was never to have millions of dollars or never to be the most famous person in the world. It was never any of that. It was just, it was really simple. I want to play drums and somehow survive. Like be able to feed yourself. Yeah, right? I don't care if I live on my friend's couch, whatever. So the so. amount of courage it takes to not have a plan B and just to absolutely go for it and say, I don't care if I'm sleeping on a sleeping bag on, you know, outdoors or on the floor, if I'm eating rice cakes or whatever it is, as long as I get to do what I want to do, or I'm going to commit myself 110% to that. Like there's, there's, that's so powerful and beautiful. Yeah, I feel like if you really want to do something, unless you're 110% sacrificed and ready to sacrifice everything. I didn't have no cool clothes. I didn't have a cool car. I was poor, but I just wanted to play the drums. Not mm -hmm. for chicks, not for any other reason, but that's what I loved, you know? So back to my kids, you know, I hope, I hope they're seeing that now. You know, they come home sometimes, they're like, why are you practicing? I'm like, you know, they're asking me if I have a show coming up. I said, no, there's no show. I'm just practicing. Mm -hmm. You know, they get it. Like, 
it, it's like you, you've got to put in work. It's tons of hard work. So my daughter plays piano and sings. My son sings and plays drums and raps. He has all sorts of stuff he loves doing. And I'm trying to install that same work ethic in them. And they've seen the grimy side of being on punk rock tours where, you know, we're, we're playing in really crappy venues and there's, you know, one bathroom you share with the entire crowd, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they've been on hip hop tours with Lil Wayne and Rick Ross and, and Nicki Minaj. And then they've been on, you know, Blink tours that are massive and in arenas all over the world. So they've seen everything. They've been to the BET Awards with me when I'm playing with the hip hop artists. They've been to the Grammys. They've seen, they've seen it all. And I'm hoping to just expose it to all of them. But at the end of the day, if my son comes home and says, Dad, I want to be a whatever. I don't know. I want to work at a library. I'm going to support my son 110%. Mm-hmm. If my daughter says, I want to be a veterinarian, I'm going to support her 110%. I'm just exposing them to everything while they're young and just seeing what they love. Yeah. And, and they both have blood, like music in their blood. It's so natural for them. My son is such a phenomenal drummer and he doesn't even practice it's insane uh-huh. <laughs> my little girl can sing her like butt off and play piano it's just i just love seeing it and i'm just trying to guide them but i you know they, they're very aware of where i came from and what i sacrificed to get where i i am and what an incredible education to be able to bring them you know on the road and and sort of ex- have those kinds of experiences and expose them to all different kinds of people it's super interesting but then balancing that against any expectation of entitlement, you know, that comes with that, right? Yeah. It's got to be tough. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, I mean, parenting in general, there's no, there's no guide to parenting, you know, and, and, you know, I'll meet like a hundred, you know, five different parents I know, and everyone's so different. It's just, you really, it's just a, a gamble, you know, trust mm-hmm. your gut and guide them and point them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You know, I just feel like that's all you can do and, and lead by example. You know, years ago when I, when I first got sober, this, uh, I was going through a divorce and, and DJ AM actually, who, uh, who passed away. But before, before I'd make any big decisions, he would be like, you need to sober up for four days in order to make a decision, you know? So I would be sober for those four days. And during that time we were both going to this therapist cause I was trying to be sober and, and AM was kind of helping me. But this therapist said, if you die today, would you be the man you'd want your kids to remember you by. And at that point, I wasn't. I was very much like a a dumpster and a drug addict. So Mm. I was like, oh my gosh. And when he said it to me, it was like, ripped my heart out. You know, I couldn't even like, I was speechless. I, you know, I couldn't say anything. And I think that's resonated with me forever. And it's just lead by example. Mm. And just know like, that's what they're seeing. And and everything I'm doing, it's they're absorbing like a sponge, you know? Yeah. So I want to talk about the sobriety stuff and, and AM and all of that, but maybe we'll get to it. Like, let's, I, I want to track back to something you said a minute ago is just this idea of, of trusting your gut and, and, you know, this, this instinct that you have that you just wanted to be able to, you know, drum and do what you love. Uh, you know, when, like, when did you, when did you know, like, this is, this is it for me. This is what it's going to be. Was it like shortly around the time your mom passed or was there, was there just a sense of like, this is it for me. This is what it's going to be. There's no, there's no plan B all, you know, guns blazing forward. Well, right before she passed, maybe like those last two summers, I was skateboarding a lot. 
and the kids in the neighborhood, they basically, I kind of started to zone in and, and, and it was kind of, I woke up because they, in order to skate their half pipe, a lot of the older kids in the neighborhood, they'd be like, you can't come skate with us unless you, if you could play the drums, learn, learn Master of Puppets from beginning to end by Metallica. Uh -huh. So I'd be like, oh, easy, whatever, you know? <laughs> and that was my, uh -huh. that was my ticket to go hang out with all the cooler kids that were like really, really incredible skateboarders in my neighborhood. So I would learn all these. And then halfway through doing this and they'd come over and they'd just come watch me play. And I, I remember playing one time and going like, wow, they're really tripping. Like they're really impressed that I can play the drums. This is so weird. And then they started learning how to play guitar. One of them was learning how to play drums. And I was like, man, I've been doing this since I was four. Like I'm way better at playing the drums than I am skateboarding. Uh -huh. And it was just, first I was in denial a little bit, and then and then it just it just hit me. And then when mom, my mom passed away and said, just play the drums, just focus on what you love, you know, don't stop, don't let anything stop you. That was like, then the switch just flipped on right. it. It was just- You had the green light. Yeah, confirmation. Like you're, you're realizing like your drumming is allowing you to, oddly enough, go skate the backyards and pools you want to skate in the neighborhood. <laughs> it was but, so what, weird. What, what other, you know, what else could it do for you? You know yeah. what I mean? Like for you, that was like awesome. But like, imagine what else, what other doors it might open for you. Yeah, it was a trip. And then that was it. Then in high school, I would take out, I was relentless. I would, there was a lot of papers at the time, everything from the recycler to, there was a paper in, in our community out in the Inland Empire called Mean Street. Uh -huh. And I would put ads out and I would, I was into so many different types of music. One might say like uh, drummer looking for band influences, uh, Fugazi, Pitchfork, Drive Like Jehu. Then the, the other one would be like uh, drummer looking for band influences, Soundgarden, Allison Chains, and w whatever. And then another one, drummer looking for band, Descendants, Minor Threat, uh -huh. and you know, whatever. <laughs> you're like all over the place. So yes. that, that started to, because you're still like that, right? Yeah. So you were never, like I would have thought, if I didn't know better, like, oh, you just, you know, you're thinking about like Chromags, Minor Threat, Black Flag. Like I could see you coming up from that kind of vein. Yeah. But being super focused on like hardcore punk, but it was jazz, it was, you know, it was rap at the time. It was all different kinds of music, right? Yeah, it was everything. I figured like, hey, if I'm gonna put my cards on the table, let me put them all out and see what, what mm -hmm. you know, what what comes back. So my dad would be like, Travis, someone's on the phone for you. And it would be like every five minutes. <laughs> and he would be so irritated. He'd be like, what'd you do? How did everyone get this number? And I mean, it was everything from those papers to local music shops. I just wanted to play with people. Right, so it wasn't about like, getting a band together it was about like i'm just gonna play in 20 bands we'll eventually get a band together but there's something weird you know like if if you were just a great guitar virtuoso and you could just play guitar like no one's business but you didn't know how to play with people it's a problem mm -hmm. and you can't teach somebody that it's you know and there was no bands like there was no now they have like these cool rock star programs at schools and stuff it's incredible but for me it was like I want to learn how to play with people. I want to learn how to like, there's a lot that goes into it. It's like you start learning how to like write your drum parts in your head with whatever songs you're creating, with whatever musicians you're playing with. So I would have people, you know, from Texas coming to see me. I would have 
whole bands, you know, auditioning me for whatever. And I, and I did that till I just found cool local bands to play with. Yeah. Super interesting. I mean, that's sort of the, the underappreciated, uh, sort of skill of becoming a successful musician, right? Being able to work with people. I mean, you know, it's no mystery. Most bands fail because no people can't get along with each other. Right. Yeah. And, and I Blink know 182 I, has had its ups and downs with that. Like every other band. Yeah. I would imagine, but being able to have like a, a you know an, a, an aptitude for communication and understanding and compassion with the people that you're playing with is crucial, right? Yeah, it's part of it's part of it. I mean, being in a band is like it, you're having a relationship. It's almost like having a girlfriend, and you have to. I, I believe there's like relationship maintenance you have to do with the people in the band. You have to obviously be collaborative in in the writing process and there is people i know that are great musicians that i've come in contact with over the years that i played and uh and they can't hold on to gigs because they are hard to work with or they're unnegotiable or just you know hard-headed and it's just people dealing with people and being able to work with people is a whole other skill along with playing your instrument along with you know what i mean everything else mm -hmm. it's part of so what is it, if role. you had to articulate like how you flow with that, like what is it about for you? Like, is it about collaboration? Is it about being flexible? Like how do you navigate the, you know, the sort of personalities that you come in contact with the people that you collaborate with? It's just knowing how to deal with people. I don't even think it involves music at that point. It's just like, how do you, do you have patience? You know what I mean? I have kids. I have the, I have the, yeah. my son asked me the other day, he's like, <laughs> how do you do it? And I was like, son, I, I've had, you know, three kids. I've raised three of you guys. I, I know I have patience. Dad knows how to, I'm very patient. Whereas like some people that might not have kids that are 39 or 40 years old that are playing in a band, maybe have zero patience or have zero, mm -hmm. you know, ways to tolerate certain things. Whereas I'm like, okay, this is how we work through this, you know? And, you know, I guess I learned, I wasn't always like that. I think I learned it through businesses that I started through, of course, other others that led by example that I looked up to, um, it, all that, you know, right. it's, it's the immediately when I got in the game and I started touring, I, I was quiet and I listened a lot and learned. Right. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So when does the first band kind of come together for you that gets a little bit of traction? In high school, I was playing in a band called Poor Mouth that would play like every party. And it was like, it was kind of awesome. Like we killed it, but it was very short lived out there. There wasn't much going on. Like for me, I didn't know how I was ever going to get out of Fontana. Right. So that's like Inland Empire, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And I kind of, I kind of bounced around from Fontana to Riverside to Corona. I was kind of everywhere. There was a pivotal moment where, you know, I played in every local band and my dad was telling me he's like look you're out of high school now you just graduated you need to pay rent and you need to work 60 hours a week or you can't be here and i you know of course i didn't want to disappoint my dad Mm -hmm. so i went and i kicked butt at the job i was at and i finally got in at the warehouse the shipping and and, uh, receiving center and i got the job it was 60 hours a week. I couldn't believe it. I was making more than four twenty-five an hour. It was the most, I thought my life was made. You know, at that time, that was a lot of money for me. I think I was going to make, I think I was going to start at four seventy-five or $5 an hour, right. which was awesome. And then I just joined this band named Feeble uh, with a lot of guys who, ironically enough, grew up in Fontana that moved to Laguna Beach. And I called everyone one day. I was like, yeah, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to join the band anymore, man. I think I'm just going to stay here and maybe not play drums as much right now because my dad said I have to work 60 hours a week and I need to pay rent and I don't want to disappoint him. And the singer of that band, Noel Paris, said, Trav, I think you're making a really bad decision. I think that you are extremely talented and you have a gift and you'll look back on this and you'll regret it. And if you don't take this opportunity, you you know, you, you'll, you'll look back and you won't be able to get this opportunity again, but you would be able to get another job working 60 hours a week. So please hear me out and please listen to me. Uh, you're too good to waste your life working at Target. So I said, screw it. And I said, dad, I'm, I'm, I listen to you and I'm leaving. I'm going to go sleep on my buddy's couch and I'm going to play in a band and be, he got me a job being a trash man in Laguna uh-huh. and I'm going to play drums, you know? So he, he helped hook you up with a gig though. So it wasn't like he was pissed. He was like, all right, that's the choice he's making and I'm going to get behind it. Like what was his reaction? Who to pops? You? Yeah. Well, he kind of gave me an ultimatum. It was either, you know, get with my get program life. or you're on your own. Yeah. He, he basically said yeah. in not so many words, stop playing drums in the garage with your friends, get a 60 hour job you know, uh, a week job or, or get out of here, you uh-huh. know, nicely, you know, cause you need to be a man. He said, you know, a man doesn't stay here and live off his pops. Right. I love you, but you've got to do that. And then luckily Noel just said, man, I, I really, I really see something in you and I, I could really feel this and you, you've got to listen to me. 
and I just said, screw it, I'm gonna do it. And um, and I went out there and I I just played in their band and and sure enough, Noel was right. Like I, I played in their plan, band, I played in this this local soca band that would play at Hennessy's, like this bar over uh-huh. there. And Feeble, we were all trash men. We were all Laguna Beach city workers. Yeah, and, that's awesome. And we would, uh, daytime, we would be cleaning up trash, doing city work. Nighttime, we'd be playing a show every night or practicing. And then, sure enough, that led to the Aquabats playing with us and seeing me. And the bass player, Chad Larson, calling me and going, dude, our drummer... Uh, isn't going to be able to play these shows or, or he quit the band. We need a drummer tomorrow. We're playing with Fishbone at the Glass House. Wow. And I was like, duh, I'm there. Right. <laughs> you know, and he's like, uh, gave that me a CD. That was like the height. So this was like late 80s, mid 80s at this nah, point? No, this was like 90s. This uh, is 90s, 95 okay. or 96. So Fishbone hit its peak like around late 80s, right? Like they were they were pretty yeah, they were still there. They were still jamming. I mean, they uh-huh. were selling out like the glass house. Right. Like 2,000, 3,000 people. Uh-huh. So that's a big step up. Oh, huge. I mean, we went from, you know, I was playing local bars, some of them twice the size of this with Feeble. And we just, you know, we were such a good band, but we we weren't connected in the music industry. Mm-hmm. We were a really great band, but uh, we weren't playing big venues. And then the Aquabats had hit me up and I played that show and they were just like, you're our drummer, man. And I didn't know they dressed up or anything. I just showed up there with some drumsticks. I had heard the album the night before. And then it was the hardest thing for me, but I had to, I had to tell, you know, cause Aquabats had a tour. I was touring now. My dream was coming true. And I had to go and tell my, one of my best friends, like a brother to me, Noel, and the rest of the guys in Feeble, who ultimately directed me and guided me to be out there and follow my dreams that I'm now leaving their band because I got an opportunity to tour with the Aquabats. That's a tough conversation. It was terrible. It was terrible. Um, What did Noel say? I mean, I think he was upset. And I think, I think everyone was upset. I think, I think all of them would have probably done what I did because they, they were, they wanted the dream so bad, just like I did. Ironically, like I said, they were from Fontana. There's not, no one comes out of Fontana. No one's doing anything. Like, I think they were, I think they were on one hand very proud of me. On the other hand, like, oh man, I can't believe this. Are those guys still playing music? Yeah, I still talk to them to this day. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, we're still friends. Uh No, I I mean, when I wrote my book, Noel actually contributed to my book. And, uh, and I called him many of times and just thanked him. Right. You know? That's cool. So you're so suddenly, I mean, how, what is the time period from getting the, getting the gig as a trash man in Laguna to getting the tour? It was probably about a year, so year, a year and a half. Yeah. So yeah. You, 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 so you paid your dues during that year, right? Like oh yeah. Rice. You were telling me the other day about like how you would, uh, the Hare Krishnas would give you food. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I would just skate, you know, I didn't have a car, you know, which goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You sacrifice everything. I had no car. All I had was a skateboard to my name. But there was, there was some days... But you're I all in, man. Yeah. You know? There were some days I didn't have much money and the Harry Krishnas would give us Hava chips. And they would have, you know, food. Like mm-hmm. a, a little buffet for whoever. I don't, I don't know what it was for. It was probably just for them. But we made friends with like the guys from Shelter and a couple other people there. So we would eat. It was awesome. Yeah. So you go on tour with uh, Aquabats, and then you guys get signed and do an album, right? Yeah, we got signed to, actually Paul Tillette, we, there was a lot of offers on the table from different people, and Paul Tillette, who who owns Golden Voice, 
signed the Aquabats, basically created a record label to sign the Aquabats. Uh huh. Wow. It was awesome. Um, and Bill Fold at the time was my manager who, who at, at the time where I grew up in Riverside and Fontana, he had a place called The Barn, which had the best shows ever. Like ev- all the great bands would go through there, you know. Your dream if you came from where I came from was to play The Barn or Spanky's mm-hmm. or any of those punk rock clubs out there. So yeah, we, 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 we wrote and, and recorded an album. It came out on Golden Voice, Paul Tillette. And and we were off. We were off running, man. We had like songs on K Rock. We filmed music videos. Mm-hmm. It was a trip. Right. So you've already like exceeded your like wildest imagination for where you thought you would go, right? Mm-hmm. And then and then what happens? You guys you guys end up being uh opening for Blink one eighty two. Is that how it goes down? Is that the next Yeah, I tore with them for maybe two years, recorded two albums with them and we are on Snowcore with Blink-182, which was like Primus, The Alcoholics, um, Blink, Aquabats. Who else is on there? Um, I feel like someone else popped on and off that tour. But we did that tour with them. And at the end of that tour, Aquabats were a great support act for Blink, meaning we'd play right before Blink every mm-hmm. night. And... Kind of oddly enough, man, the same thing happens. I'm in the Aquabats and Blink's drummer leaves. They have a falling out like 40 minutes before their show. And Aquabats are, are, are about to play and they're like, dude, our drummer just left. I think he quit. Can you learn hmm. 20 songs in like 40 minutes? And I was like, uh, sure. <laughs> you know, 20 songs in 40 minutes. Yeah. And luckily, like some nights... You, it just happens naturally too. You go out, you know, you go out and you watch the bands before you or mm-hmm. after you just to support and kind of check it out. So I'd kind of seen some of the stuff, but I wasn't listening to it with the ear that, oh, I'm going to have to play this. I was just like, oh, this is cool, whatever. Mm-hmm. They were fun to watch. They were really funny. And Mark and Tom were really loud and kind of ignorant and just, you know, uh, just, you know, like a fun, fun, fun band. And that day we just got in the dressing room i said tom just play me all the songs on guitar i just need to see how you're picking and what the rhythms are and 40 minutes later hopped on stage played our, our first show see together. that's crazy that's insane so it wasn't about mimicking every single drum stroke so that you could be you know exactly the same as the drummer who preceded you but it was about finding your own way to play these songs yeah uh-huh yeah, and then I played And being it. able to tap into that in just 45 minutes for 20 songs. I mean, that's that goes back to like the past life thing, like you being able to learn music, you know, sheet music at age four or five, like the fact that you could channel that like so intuitively is pretty amazing. Yeah, it was awesome, man. It was, and me, for me, I was having so much fun. I was like playing two sets a night. So I did it for like the next four or five shows. Uh-huh. And after the first one, they said, we want you to be our drummer. And I said, well, I think you have a drummer. He just left, though. Right. You know, it's kind of like a girl. You meet a girl and she's like nuts about you. Like, oh, my gosh. And then you're like, you have a boyfriend. Like, mm-hmm. hit me when you don't have a boyfriend. It was kind of that same scenario. I told him, I was like, well, if things don't work out with your drummer, he doesn't come back. Obviously, I'd love to play with you. And they were, you know, we've never sounded better. We love this. And we got home from tour. The shows were over. And, and they said, you know what? We're going to call you in a week and let you know what's up call me in a week they say you got a show tomorrow night 6 p.m be there 
and it was just it was it just was green on. light yeah, yeah it was like that was it and then you gotta you have to go back to the aquabats and have that same conversation same thing yes we were we were actually doing what's called grad night at disneyland where they would have i think no doubt did it the year before and ska was so popular then, you know? Yeah. Was that, was like the no doubt phenomenon spilling over into Fontana? It was kind of happening a little bit before you, right? Or oh, around everywhere. the same time? Because it was, you know, they're Orange County, so not too far away. Yeah, ska punk and punk rock was just everywhere, you know? So we would play with no doubt, you know? Aquabats would open for them. We did grad night the year after them. So those were my last shows. And I remember I had to tell them same thing like, hey, yeah, it was just so weird, man. Every time I felt guilty. I don't know. I don't know if I should have felt guilty, but I did. And uh, and you just like I said, the, the people you play with, they become your brothers. It, it was just it become like a family. And and it was hard. I remember, you know, us bawling the last day I told them, you know, I, it's, I'm, I'm going to go play with blink and they just couldn't believe it. You know? Yeah. And for, for me, it was like, man, am I, am I a jerk? You know what I mean? Like right. you're a it, climber. Yeah. Am I a climber? Am I like, what, what am I, what am I supposed to do? And I, and I just saw, you know, Aquabats had like nine people in the band. We were in like a 10 passenger van. Sometimes it was 13 people in a 10 passenger van. Mm. Just, it was just it was it was rough and and uh and it just it just seemed like the right thing to do yeah I just trusted my gut how are those guys doing now what are they doing great we're still great friends oh, that's good and christian c- contributed to my my book that's can cool. i say it was really cool christian contributed to it and so did noel and, and the guys from feeble for it so mm-hmm. having both of them i told them meant so much to me and and i let them tell their story you know, they, they were honest, like, right. You know, Christian says I was pissed. I couldn't believe it. Like, and, um, and even I just, I learned stuff about myself just from their interviews in my book, which was cool. Yeah. It's almost like it's on therapy. Cause I didn't do the, you know, I, I didn't interview people for my book. I had Gavin Edwards who I co-wrote the book with, mm-hmm. he would do these interviews and he would say, we're keeping everything in there. And I'd be like, Oh my gosh! So and so else's perspective on yeah. you, and I'd yeah, be like your decisions. So some people might not be, you know. I remember like Christian said, like he he kind of talked bad about Blink, and I was like, should I put that in there? That's kind of, I don't know. He's like everything stays in there. You've got to be brutally honest, and you know, Christian even said like, you know, I felt like Travis was so good when he was in our band. He he was like the Michael Jordan of drumming, and sometimes he wouldn't listen to me, and he would play songs faster than I wanted him to play them. But I never heard those things. When I was in the band, so yeah. it was like I really listened when I read it in my book, and I was like, "Wow, I never realized I was being like that, or I never, you know what I mean, or I never realized you viewed me like that, or whatever." That's compelling, it was. though. That that makes for a compelling memoir because you're getting you're getting the truth. You yeah, know what I mean, and that's what you really want out of a memoir. Too many memoirs are glossy, whitewashed, you know, sort of best of versions of somebody's life you know and it's not it's yeah. not honest so and i was so happy i did that there was a there's a couple things you know i was brutally honest about a lot and the day after it came out the day it came out it was uh i remember being really emotional because i was just going like oh my gosh everything i shared mm. i'm almost having to relive again because i'm doing press for the book and i found out i wasn't prepared for it just to talk about certain things i was still very mm. emotional about it 
So it was like, oh, it was draining, man. I was so, it was just crazy. But then a, a couple of days after the book came out, I'm like, I'm so glad I was honest. Yeah. Because I can't go back and go, I didn't say this and I wanted to in my book. It's like, I pretty much said it all besides things that I was legally not allowed to say. Yeah. It's cathartic, you know, but it's a very vulnerable feeling. Like I experienced my version of that, uh, you know, when my book came out and knowing that I'd been honest about stuff that I wasn't proud of, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and only being able to write that by sort of pretending or imagining that I was writing in a journal no one was ever going to read and then realizing like, oh man, this is like out there, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I don't have you know, I have like one one thousandth the profile that you have. So to know that like mainstream America, like all knows that all this stuff about your life is a, is a, is an inexplicably vulnerable feeling, right? Yeah. I can imagine. I can't imagine what that must've been like. Yeah. It was a trip, but it's like, but you're clear, right? You're clear. Yeah. You know what I mean? I really felt a huge weight lifted off my shoulders mm -hmm. and just, I can put, I can move on now, right. you know? So blank blows up, and I would imagine that kind of changes the, <laughs> the tenor of your life, right? Yeah. I mean, that just was must have been an insane time. I came home, and I told my pops. I was just filling in for Blink, and I was like, Dad, I made like, I have $3,000 right now. And he's like, you better hold on to it, because you're never going to get it again. <laughs> and I was like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> I, was uh -huh. like, I was like, thanks a lot. He's like, I'm serious, Trav. You don't know when you're going to make it again. And then that was before I, you know, they called me the week later and then I started going on tour and I remember my pops, like, you know, we, we came from lower middle-class, you know, family and he didn't, you know, he didn't have a running car. He had like this old Cadillac in the back of his backyard that, mm -hmm. that I would like hose off for him and wash, but it didn't run. So my first paycheck, I came and I bought him a Cadillac and I just, oh, nice. it was just a trip, you know, I could like. Uh, I went. I, the first things I did was helped out my dad and my sisters, made sure they were cool. Mm -hmm. And then uh, how many sisters do you have? Two. Two. Yeah. What are they doing now? Um, one works at my print shop, and the other one works at my clothing company. Uh huh. Cool. Famous. So, yeah. Yeah. Nice man. Yeah. That's cool. Taking care of your family, but I would imagine like suddenly, you know, it's Bling City, right? Yeah. It's uh, it's going because even Bling at the time we were still. We were playing small clubs. We were playing clubs around mm -hmm. across America and Europe. Our first uh, tour in Europe was in a van. It was still very much, it was kind of picking up right where a little bit bigger than Aquabats, you mm -hmm. know? And and then we recorded our album. The first album I recorded with them was called Enema of the State. And we just blew up blew up and yeah. it was just insane did you, know? you see that like when you made the decision to to move over to blank like did you see that potential on the horizon like did you have the idea like this this band's going to go further and bigger and broader yeah well because at the time aquabats and they still are they're very much uh i guess focused on children and there are a lot of good good qualities about them no cussing uh, they're all Mormon, so it all fits into what what they can and can't do. Mm -hmm. But their end goal, what really what really you know cried out to me was their end goal was to have a television show, have a cartoon, and my end goal was to play in a rock band or, <laughs> yeah, or a punk rock band. Goals. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't, I, you know, being in the Aquabats, if I just put it down on paper, it'd have been like, okay, I'm gonna play drums in a band that I love, like interesting music, really cool, new wave ska, 
great guys, but at the end of the day, Christian really wanted it to be a TV show. Mm. And for me, I was like, I don't know if I want to be an actor or whatever. I was like, I really just want to play the drums and Mm -hmm. play fast and fun and just, you know, and it was a three piece. So it was just, it was very minimal and, and fun. And, and I knew who Blink was, you know, I had, I had listened to some of their albums and it just, it just made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. So Enema of the State blows up. And at this time, like MTV still pretty relevant, right? Like, yeah. So you're, and you're all over that. We're on TRL. We're like number one on the countdowns. We're like, there's people sleeping outside of my gate at my house. Wow. Uh, in Corona, where I had just moved, and I had no idea I was I I, sh I needed to move out just because I there was no privacy there. There was people trying to break in my house. There was like stalkers. There was girls trying to handcuff themselves to me after shows. There was <laughs> there was a lot of strange things going on uh -huh. that I was just like, Are you serious? Like, like, how did you manage that? Like, did you manage it well, or were you just in for the ride or like how did that go down for you i was in for the ride but i was in a little bit of disbelief because we didn't really you know we were just we were a pop punk band right you know it was goofy who, yeah who loved the descendants and and all and black flag and whatever all these bad religion all these bands we just grew up on and then all of a sudden you know a, a, a network like mtv gets behind you and and is just saying you have the number one video in the world um, people from our genre of music weren't ready for that. We didn't know yeah. what to do. We didn't even know what that was. We were like, it was insane. But yeah, I mean, we figured it out. You know, obviously with with the success, the shows got bigger. We were playing arenas now. Mm -hmm. You know, making million dollar videos at the time. A record label at the time yeah. was like, you're at the point of your career where you need to make a million dollar video. Can you believe that? A That's insane. On a video. I know. Oh my gosh, man. It was just... Did they ever do that anymore? No. Yeah. No. I mean, they've figured it out. Like, you do not need a million dollars for video. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we had, like, the guy Samuel Bayer who did, like, yeah. Smells Like Teen Spirit. He was the guy. Yeah. And we're, we're traveling around in private jets. It's just... Right. Playing two or three shows a day sometimes. It was it was insane. And and are you happy? Like, are you like I'm living the dream? This is awesome. Or how's this landing for you? Oh yeah, it was just more of like a, I was like foggy. I didn't I couldn't believe it. It was uh -huh. just I'm just I'm just along for the ride. I'm just cruising, you know, right. rolling with the punches. Like whatever whatever they spring on me, I'm going okay. I'm I'm down. Whatever mm -hmm. you know. We want you to play on top of the whatever Empire State Building. Okay. We then you're going over to TRL and then you're going to go play uh, Madison Square Garden. And I'm like, I don't even know what Madison Square Garden is. You're going to play this show called Saturday Night Live. I don't know what Saturday Night Live is. <laughs> I, had wow. no, I had no clue. I always say one of the funniest things we played Saturday Night Live, I didn't know how insanely special it is to play Saturday Night Live. I had no clue. It's just another How TV show. How did you not know that, though? I just didn't you grow didn't up like yeah. watching. How old were you at the time? Like 25 or something? 25? Yeah. Yeah. Probably, but I didn't grow up watching TV. I grew up skateboarding, watching skate videos, listening to punk rock, and, you know, trying to mimic Mike D from the Beastie Boys. Right. <laughs> I, was, I, was not, I was not watching late night television. I just yeah. didn't even... I, I knew who Jay Leno was because my dad was such a big car guy, like loved cars. But yeah, it was a trip. Wow. So touring, what was the most like surreal thing that happened during that era? Um, just the massive tours, just going to 
I mean, you take you take a band that was playing two to three thousand seaters, and after Enema of the State, we had this wrote this incredible album, and we're out playing, you know, to ten to thirty thousand people mm-hmm. a night, mm-hmm. you know, all summer long, and it was just the only time it stopped is when we begged for it to stop. Just don't book shows for a month or two, or we were so over. I mean, I don't I don't call it overworked because we get to do what we love, but there comes a point, and I always say this. There comes a point when you're on the road, your management's back home, and they just keep booking shows. And there is yeah, there the, is a such the, thing. You're the cash register. Yeah, there is a know? such thing as sanity, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and ultimately, like that led to me doing a lot of drugs. Mm-hmm. Was just no one saying, "Hey, is everything cool out there? Like, do you guys need to come up for air?" We were touring like nine months, ten months out of the year. Yeah, it was insane. So. Sometimes we'd get home and Mark, Tom, and I would get on the phone. They're like, who's going to say they're sick? <laughs> and I'd be like, I'm sick. And he's like, yeah, man, I don't think we could do like the first week of this tour. We're going to have to postpone the first week of this that's tour. That's crazy because you guys are like 25. You're like, your veins are coursing with testosterone. Like if you yeah. guys can't manage it, like nobody can. Yeah, know? I think it was just the ins- just insane. Like at the time, you're away from your families. You just, there comes this cold time eight months into touring where you haven't been home, you haven't seen your family and you haven't had a break where you're just like, I need a minute. Yeah. Just real quick. Give me a minute. Give me one day off. Give me two days off and we're cool. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, it was, uh, it was just insane. It was, so, aw- it was awesome. So, uh, so the drugs start creeping in a little bit. Like, what are you doing? Like smoking a little pot? Like, are you do, do the painkillers come in or is that only after like the injury? Well, for me, um, I started smoking cigarettes for whatever reason while I was out there, and and uh, and I didn't like to fly. When I was 19 and I was in feeble and I was a trash man, I got drunk for the first time and I told my manager, um, I'm going to die in a plane crash. And he was like, what are you talking about? You've never even had enough money to fly in your life. And I was like, you're right, I haven't. I've never, I've only flown once in my life and it was the scariest thing in the world. But I cried to him after being like, having like too much alcohol for the first time and said, I'm gonna die in a plane crash. It was the weirdest thing. That so That is a trip. Yeah, and I didn't know, note to self, I did not know that until he did his interview for my book. And he reminds me that I said that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I did say that, that's, that's so scary to me. So fast forward to Blink, we're flying four, three times a day sometimes. We're knocking out a show in the morning, a today show, whatever, a morning show for the news, uh, an early festival time slot at mm-hmm. one festival, and then at night playing our own show. So we're flying all the time, and that's when... So the anxiety, is there some anxiety rationing it up? Oh, yeah. and flying? I think Tom was, honestly, I think Tom was the first one. He was like... Here's a Norco. Like these will, this will like calm you down if you get stressed or whatever on flights. And I'd always be white knuckling. And they'd be like, "Dude, it's fine. It's just the landing gear going up." And they would always tease me. But flying, I think, I think the one time I flew at a young age, I saw my mom and she was bawling the entire time on the flight because she was so scared. And I think that maybe had something to do with how I felt about flying. So I'd be white knuckling every time we'd fly, and we'd be mm. on these small planes. Sometimes it'd be a private jet. Sometimes we'd fly commercial. We just never knew. It was just in Europe, the planes were old. It was just, it was something I really learned to hate. I just mm. did not like flying. Anything I could do um, to, to forget I was on an airplane. So it led to me taking 
handfuls of of Norcos and Vicodin and Valium, which later led to like Oxycontin, right? Um, tons of of weed, and then Sherm PCP weed laced with PCP. Uh, it was just anything, anything to to not realize I was on a plane again, right? It's interesting that it all germinates from that, right? Like that fear, and and again, like I can't get, I can't get past like this. It's it really does feel like this weird past life thing, like this knowing that you had, like you're supposed to avoid airplanes, you know? Yeah. Like just this intuition that you had about it, and every time you got on a plane, knowing that that was at cross purposes with what your inner self was telling you. Yeah, I mean yeah. everyone. I mean, if AM was still here, he would say Travis was a mess on airplanes. Mm-hmm. You know, Mark and Tom, you know, the worst flyer ever. You know, they would just point yeah. at me and laugh because I just, I mean, it wouldn't be screaming, but you could just look at my face. I'd stay up the whole time just waiting, you know? I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Well, can we talk about the the plane crash? Yeah, a little of course. Bit? You're okay with that? I mean, you know, it's well documented and everything like that. But you know, it's quite, you know, it was quite the tragic encounter. I just, I can't imagine, you know, what that must have been like trying to, you know, overcome that. But maybe, you know, walk us through exactly what happened. Um, so, DJ AM and I, there was a point where. The uh, Mark and Tom and I, it was it was lots of touring, like I had said. I think it had, you know, taken its toll on everybody. And Blink, Tom, you know, just basically Tom one day just said, I'm done. Mm. He couldn't do it no more. It was like, you know, there was miscommunication with management. And some of us wanted to tour all the time. And... Uh, he wanted to stay home a lot. It was just, it was a mess. So Blink breaks up. About four months later, Transplants, my other band, breaks up. Mm. And I'm like, what am I going to do? I'm so used to being a busybody. I'm used to doing everything, everywhere. So I meet DJ AM and he's a great DJ that plays everything. Everything. He plays things people would wouldn't dare have the balls to play in a club and he and he just makes it iller than anyone could ever imagine you know so we we connect and i tell him like yo i have this idea where it's drummer dj i don't know and you know i'm not doing anything right now my my bands are on time off right now we should jam and he's like oh i'd love to we start jamming. The first time we jam, we jam for like 10 hours. <laughs> and it was just, he was like a guitar player yeah. throwing every genre of music at me. The Beatles throwing uh, whatever, you know, Ghetto Boys throwing 
you know, Daft Punk, everything, you know. He was magic. I mean, he was so innovative in what he was, he was doing. So and way great. ahead of the curve. Yeah, way ahead of his time. So long story short, we developed this routine that was like, to me, was really innovative no one was doing it It was mind-blowing man we were on to something we we were playing like k-rock weenie roast we were playing all the venues and gigs my bands were playing mm -hmm. back in the day uh a week before our plane crash we were, we're the house band for mtv music awards you know it was <laughs> ill it was the best time ever um so we had gigs i was gigging just as much as with am as i was blink right. big shows too it was just him and i it was crazy so it was it was one of those days where I, I, we had a show it was for like T-Mobile and they would pay us big money to go and play these shows and it was in South Carolina and I remember before we left I was like I don't really need to go it's summer and and my 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 baby's mama uh, Shayna at the time we weren't together but she was like don't go then like if you don't have to go you don't need the money it's like why are you doing it and i was like i'm doing it because i love playing with adam and i think adam was going through the same thing like ah, we don't have to go but it was just one of those things it's booked let's honor what we committed to so we flew out to south carolina wasn't uh wasn't shanna gonna come with you yeah shana was gonna come my kids were bawling man it was like it was the weirdest thing my kids were bawling my little girl alabama was saying She's freaking the whole time. She's never done this. She's crying, saying the roof's gonna come off. And I'm like, what are you talking about, Bama? And and she's a baby at the time. And she's just, the kids are crying, not normal, like weird, you know? That is so um, trippy. And yeah, like like I said, my gut, this is one of the big examples of where I was like, my gut told me not to go. So I ended up going and she was gonna go with us, but she's like, nah, I shouldn't go just in case, God forbid something was to happen, we'd both be in that plane. So we go and uh, the flight out there is cool. I take my assistant, little Chris, and uh, and our, our we just had a big homie named Che who was like our good friend, mm -hmm. and he was like he was playing college football. I, basically, Chris and I were like, dude, instead of hiring security for now, we should just take Che with us. Che's gonna be security yeah. for now on because <laughs> it's it's good having friends on tour with you too. Uh -huh. And Che's big and you know intimidating. Che's never been on a private plane. Uh, you know, we go out there on a G4, everything's cool. We play our show. And then after the show, um, we had a flight booked for tomorrow. Everything was everything was set up. But uh, AM's like, yo, I want to get back tonight. Like, you know, what are we going to do in South Carolina, you know? And then Chris had just had his son, Sebastian, who's my godson. Mm -hmm. He's like, yeah, man, we should just go home, Trav. Um and I was like, well, we have a flight book tomorrow. Don't trip. Let's just chill here, you guys. But it's like majority rules. Anywhere we go, if, if I get outvoted, I'm, I'm rolling with the punches, mm -hmm. you know? And everyone the was people like... people skills. Yeah. So I took one for the team. I said, okay, whatever, man. You guys, let's book the flight, whatever. So booking flights like this, usually, like the, the flight out there, it's like I speak to a manager and I say, who's the pilot? What's the plane? What's the history? Is everything cool? Oh wow! So I, you're getting into oh, it. Oh, I'm really I'm oh. terrified of flying. So I, and ironically enough, the the flight out there was cake, a piece of cake, man. We we knew who the pilot was. He was super cool. He knew I was a little bit weird about flying, you know. Um, great flight though. On the way back, you got to think, man. We just got off stage. It's nine thirty, ten o'clock, and we make the phone call, get us a plane. So the plane is booked. 
in an hour's time. No, There's no one dotting the I's or crossing the T's. It's like, yo, you guys want a plane? I'm gonna do everything I can do to get this mm-hmm. plane there. So the plane gets there and- So uh, in, implying that like shortcuts were made on the checklist or? Well, I know my checklist wasn't done, you know, yeah. cause Gus, who was our tour manager for Blink, you know, usually there was like a, a, you know, there's a little checklist that goes, and I know that checklist wasn't gonna happen. It was an hour's time. And LV's like, dude, it's not gonna be the greatest plane, but I'll get it. Once again, rolling with the punches, mm-hmm. you know, whatever for the team. So we get there, we pull up to the airport and it's like private airport and there's all these jets and then there's this fucking Lear over all by itself. And I was like, oh, cold as ice. Tell me that is not our plane. And sure enough, the driver drives up to that plane and I'm just looking at it. No, you know, bad, bad feeling, man, bad feeling. My gut's saying no, it, to the point where I actually call my dad, who at the time, now I say I love you every time I speak to him, he's like 75, but growing up, he's a Vietnam vet, he's tough, man, tough, tough dad, you know? And uh, I know he loved me, but we wouldn't say I love you or be gushy, you know? Yeah. It was like more tough love. Not, not a hugger. Yeah. <laughs> for, for him and I, so I call him and I'm like, I'm bawling at this point. And I say, dad, like I have a really bad feeling. Oh, you were crying before you even got on the yeah, plane. I'm crying and my dad's like, what the fuck is wrong with you, Trav? <laughs> Why are you crying? And I said, dad, I don't know. I have a horrible feeling. If something happens, pal, just do whatever you can to make sure the kids are cool. Cause I have a horrible feeling. And he's like, well, you're gonna be fine, you know? And I take a picture of the plane. I send it to like, I think I send it to my pops. I send it to my boy Rob that's in the transplants with me. Weird enough, Chris does the same thing. I don't know that he does this, but he sends a, a picture of him in front of the plane to his wife. Um, we get in the flight. There's like a really young pilot and a, it kind of like eased off some of the pressure because she was really young. And I was like, wow, you look really young. I was like, you fly the plane? She's like, yeah, I'm I'm like getting my hours up or whatever, you know, she's basically, you know, she's with like an OG captain that's, you know, flying with her, you know, teaching her. So we get in there and she's basically like, okay, well, there's no room for a stewardess in this plane, so I'll be up in the cockpit. If you guys need anything, you know, just come knock on the door, whatever. So we get in the flight and I'm fucking baked, man. I've smoked so much weed and I've, taking so many pills. It's my normal concoction to get on the flight, you know? Especially this one, I'm going heavy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we get on, everyone's like, we're, there's actually a video, man. I have the video of it. AM, back in the day, there was these flip cams. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. They, they were like the coolest thing yeah, before every phone had one. Uh-huh. And he's on the flight and he's like, what do you know about a, a drummer, a DJ, and a PJ? Like, you know, like kind of like, kind of flexing a little bit, we're on a private jet, whatever, having, trying to have fun. And Chris is like, you know, what's up, Chris, whatever. We're just goofing off, like, you know, thinking we're just living in the lap of luxury on a private flight home. Everyone else is, I'm scared to death already, you know? So Chris falls asleep, Che falls asleep, we're still on the runway. And I'm like wide awake, man, I'm just sitting there. Adam's sleeping. We go up and down the runway. We're going the wrong way. And they turn around. The wrong way on the runway? Yeah. Like, so right out They're of like, the gate. They're like, sorry, yeah, we're, uh, sorry, we, we went down the wrong runway. And then I was like, oh my gosh, man, what the hell, you know? And then, uh, 
And then I, I'm kind of like dozing off. And then finally, you know, you feel like the engine start up again. And we go to take off and our, uh, our, our landing gear, like the tire, basically our tires explode. Sounds like gunshots, you know, not very many people will know what it sounds like when your tires explode on your plane. So it sounded like someone's shooting at the plane. Multiple tires. Yeah. Like, it'd be, <laughs> like if one went out. I'm yeah. Like it sounded like someone was, you know, like throwing rounds, you know? So I hear like these, these loud bangs and then the plane is like skidding on the runway. So we have no tires. So now it's landing gear against the runway. Mm-hmm. And then smoke just starts filling the cabin and fire immediately because the friction from the landing gear on the runway. And then we go up in the air. And then... Ah, you have lift off. Yeah. And then we we lift off. So we're hearing from the captain from the cockpit at all? No, I'm just screaming because I I feel like I know something's wrong. Once the bang, bang happened, the plane kind of got out of control. Then we we were up in the air. So I'm screaming, man. And it's just black in the the plane and smoke everywhere. And then uh, the plane is basically going up high. And then it's dipping down and then going up and then dipping down and... uh, and then it started it started getting lower and hitting the the cement going up and down like bouncing hitting, off yeah the bouncing off the cement and i'm screaming man i'm screaming like but obviously they they have their hands full in the cockpit who knows what's going on and then we go and by this time there's fire everywhere and I, i'm looking at fire no longer smoke it's fire and um we swoop up i think we swoop up and down like five or six times and then the last time we go really high in the air it almost felt like we were almost like going vertical and then all of a sudden the plane swoops down and we hit an embankment and we stop and i'm somehow alive you know every time i'm just bracing myself because i'm looking out the window i'm wide awake i'm numb i'm on so many painkillers and whatever else so i'm seeing us swoop down so i can kind of like brace myself every time we hit Finally, we hit and I'm on fire. You know, there's- Like literally. I'm on fire, yeah. Like Uh my my hands are on fire. Um, I'm trying to move forward to see if I can get to Chris or Che. There's four of you in the cabin? Yeah. Um, And then my my whole, everything catches fire. My my shirt catches fire. And then I turn to my left and AM's knocked out and I grab him and I shake him. He wakes up. I can't get to Chris or Che. It's just a wall of fire. I can't see anything. So I open I open the emergency exit, which I always, I forgot to say, but I always sit next to an emergency exit in any plane. I sit, I, I open the, I kick open the emergency exit. I jump out and I land in the jet. So I land in, in the jet, which if anyone knows like about behind, like planes. Like behind the, like in the jet stream behind the engine. Yeah, which is filled with fuel. Right. So my whole body catches fire. I jump into a basically a pool of jet fuel. Um, my whole body catches fire. AM jumps out over the jet. He's not on fire. And he's basically on the phone. I'm running and he's screaming. He's on the phone with our manager going, our plane crashed. He's like crying, screaming. He's like, Trav's on fire. So I'm just running. And at this time, the embankment was right next to a freeway. So I have cars that are watching me run on fire. And I'm just stripping off my clothes 
my gut tells me to strip off my clothes. I don't know what else to do. I don't. You're in the middle of the road this, at this point. And yeah. Cars are coming in both directions. Yeah, the cars are like facing us, and there's no one on our side because everyone sees the plane there. Uh-huh. And um, and I don't realize my my skin is soaked in jet fuel, so it doesn't matter what I take off. So I get to the point where I'm butt naked and I'm just running, but my whole body's on fire. And then I just hear one guy, man, like, I don't even, I don't even know where he was. I know he's off to the left of me that just says, like what you learn in elementary school, like stop, drop and roll. Drop and roll, yeah. And sure enough, man. Like yelling I, from a car? Or? Yeah, ru- yelling from a car. And I, I just lay down and I start rolling and then Adam comes out, DJ AM, and he, he gets his shirt and he starts patting me out. And that's how he um, got burnt a little bit. He got a little burn on his arm and on his neck. But basically, after a couple minutes, he pats me out. And then as he pats me out, the plane explodes. And you were the, you're the only two guys who made it out. Yeah. Yeah, we're the only two guys. Um, I mean, later we found out. We found out Chris and Che, my assistant in my security, they weren't wearing their seatbelts, so they, they died immediately of head trauma. Probably the first couple times the plane did the, the crazy, mm-hmm. you know, up and down. Um, found out, unfortunately, the the pilots um, were burnt. Um, and uh, and we were the only two survivors. And so intense, man. Yeah, it was insane. And you, I mean, you two guys, like, you just, I mean, the fact that you even made it out it's just it's unbelievable oh yeah i mean knowing i mean watching the plane blew up like seconds afterward maybe 50 60 seconds afterwards that's just and it's like that's like out of a movie like that doesn't happen no yeah i mean i think it had everything to do with maybe where i was sitting i was always so crazy i'd sit next to the the emergency exit i always had my seatbelt on Mm -hmm. um studying that card yeah <laughs> instructions yeah i was just always so freaked out yeah. you know i wouldn't sleep until takeoff i would listen to every little noise but yeah and then uh long story short i, I spent the next four months in a burn center i had 28 surgeries 28 so second and third degree burns all down your legs right yeah all my feet my legs all the way up to my waist um yeah just surgery after surgery, skin grafts, and, and you know you came close to losing your foot or your leg at one point. Yeah, my right foot was almost wow. amputated. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was uh there was that you know there was four months of the burn center, and then there was probably another. I think we played our first show seven months after mm-hmm. the plane crash, and I couldn't have done it any any sooner. I I didn't even once I got home, I was so I was just. It was it was insane. The medicine they had me on in the hospital. Yeah, that must have just amped up all oh, of that, like big time, and just just medicating like the trauma of what you had experienced, right? And the survivor guilt. Yeah, I had tons of survival guilt. I had um, suicidal tendencies. I was crazy, um, and then I was on so many drugs. I didn't even realize. Maybe a month into being in the hospital, I said, "Where's Chris and where's Jay? Mm-hmm. I want to go in their rooms." I just figured they were in there with me. Yeah, you just checked out. It was uh, it was yeah. insane. And then when I got home, um, fast forward, you know, four months after the burn center, I go home and I'm on like 19 different drugs. Mm-hmm. And they say, you're going to be on these the rest of your life. You need this bipolar medicine. You need this. 
And it was even scarier, man. I would like bipolar. Yeah, tons for of, like PTSD or like what is? Yeah, for PTSD because uh-huh. I was, you know, I was fifty one fifty in the hospital. They were, wow. It was uh, there was some really dark times there. But um, I and, and even when I got home, I would walk down the street. It took me a month to even go outside, and mm-hmm. then I walked down the street and I saw a plane in the air, and I would run and hide in a bush. I was like, yeah, it was it was I was a crazy person. I didn't even I was scared. You know, but Adam being kind of like a, you know, well-known longtime sober dude, like, you know, was he, where is he at this moment? So is he, is he trying to, is he trying to like, you know, shock you out of this condition that you're in? Is he trying to help you out at all? Well, Adam goes and we had therapists that we had spoke to leading up before the plane crash, just to try to get me sober and to keep him sober. Mm -hmm. Um, And after the plane crash, he started seeing someone different. And I mean, he would come and visit me. Once I got normal, about a month after I got home, I wouldn't call it normal, but I was a little better. I wasn't, you know, as strange. And, and uh, you know, even, even when I got home, there was a week, probably a week of threatening to commit suicide and trying to get my gun and just really, I don't know, just in a really dark place. And then maybe a month later, Adam and I, you know, started kind of meeting up and he's like, let's just talk, man. I want to know what you remember and what I remember. And we would just share stories. And Mm -hmm. he would tell me, you know, I finally, at one point, which is good to note, I just, I said, you know what, man, I, I had heard my uncle talking about me and I heard one of my best friends going like, dude, Travis isn't the same. He's like slow. And he's, you know, I heard people talking about me. And to me, it was like, these medicines are fucking me up. Like I shouldn't be on them. I feel weird on them, you know? And my doctor was like, you're probably going to need him for the rest of your life. And one day I just grabbed him and I threw him in the trash. I flushed him down the toilet. And I had like a week of anxiety, some of the worst anxiety I've ever had, just weaning myself off of him. And I just smoked weed. I smoked a little bit of weed every day to go to sleep, you know, because I wasn't, when I got home, I don't think I slept for like 72 hours straight. Mm -hmm. I was just having flashbacks and somehow the medication from the hospital versus the medication you know i was on morphine for five months straight in the hospital i got home and the medicine wasn't the same i was losing my mind you know i was like i couldn't sleep i was having flashbacks i was like oh i swear like i was just supposed to die it was like final destination Mm -hmm. someone was going to come out of the sky and kill me and then uh i got to an okay place and am and i started talking and he said trav we need to go to this spot where they retrain your brain We've got to do this. I said, I'll go with you. So we do this therapy. And I just told Aim, I said, man, for me, 65% of my body was burnt, man. I'm not going to forget what happened. I'm not going to forget. That was the idea, trying to make it so that you couldn't remember it? Yeah, that's what this place supposedly sold us on, uh you know? And I was like, I'm going to look down every day and know 65% of my body was burnt in a plane crash. And I lost my two best friends. And it's not... You're not gonna, there's no way you can convince me that didn't happen, but I'll go. So we went to all these therapy classes together. Um, But then on the side, he was seeing a new therapist just for PTSD. And I was seeing the same one that I was in the hospital with that talked me out of, you know, there was a point where in in the hospital, I said, I called one of my buddies and I said, man, I'll transfer a million dollars to you if you just smoke me. I'm, I'm done. Just off you. Yeah. Uh, I didn't that's, how, rea- that's how dark it, it was. Yeah, I didn't get to see my kids. I didn't even like, I didn't even, I, it sounds weird to say, but I didn't even, 
I couldn't see them. I was in, no one could come in my room because I was so prone to infection with all these open sores. I just was not in my right mind. So he starts seeing a therapist that says, you were in a plane crash. It's okay to take Xanax to a guy who has like, I don't know, I think yeah, 13 yeah, years yeah, sober. He had, long, he had a lot of time at that time. Yeah, he was, he was, I mean, he was the guy getting me sober, you know? Yeah. So she says, it's okay. You know, you were, you went through this horrible experience, this horrific experience. Take whatever you need to take. And he starts taking Xanax. Um, Cause he's flying. Yeah. So he's taking that and I can kind of tell there's a difference in him, but- uh, Just activate the demon, you know? Yeah. And at this time I'm home, I'm with my kids in a matter of, Two weeks, I throw away all their medication. My kids are my, dude, they're my strength. They're my support, everything. I have like, you know, I have the best support team ever. They're they're there watching me recover. And I'm like, I'm finally in a good headspace. I'm talking to my PTSD person every, every day. Everything was getting much better. And we have lunch one day and he's just like, man, I don't, uh, you know, you have the kids and you have like, you know, these things to live for and lead by example. I don't have anybody. And, you know, at that point I was just like, well, I mean, we, we looked online. There was no like, uh, like plane, plane crash survivor mm -hmm. support groups. Really. There was like, Hey, if you've lost someone in a plane crash, come here. This is a, mm -hmm. a support group. But we were kind of in a unique situation where we didn't have a lot of survivors to talk to. Yeah. So I said, man, we have each other, you know, whatever you need any time of day, just like you were there for me before the accident, whatever, uh, I'm here, you know? So we would talk all the time and just, you know, keep each other straight. Cause we had a, we had something very special that we, we lived through together. And uh, one of the last times I had seen him, we played, we played in Vegas and, you know, we had just played New Year's. We were back on track. We were playing all these cool shows. And we played this incredible show and it was awesome. And, and uh, Blink was, it was actually Blink reunion and we played two shows in the city and then AM and I played at night afterwards. And it was just so good, man. And then after the show, you know, we, we talk and I'm like, what a great show. And then he's like, man, um, he says to me, he's like, man, I just feel like doing a shit ton of drugs and saying, fuck it. And I was like, course we both feel like that but we're not going to do it you know especially you you're sober you know you've you've helped so many of us be sober and get sober um and at the time i'm not even smoking weed anymore i needed a i needed maybe a month of month or two of smoking weed just to wean myself off those those toxic drugs that that the hospital gave us and then that was the last time i'd seen him sadly enough and that was the last words he said to me yeah it's brutal so it's unclear, you know, whether it was just a, a relapse overdose or whether it was a conscious choice to, you know, end his pain. Yeah, we were in New York and I knew he was going to be there at the same time. We were, we would talk online. Like, I think I said something on Twitter, like I had said something like, ah, oh, so good to be back with my boys playing shows or whatever and uh, referring to Blink. Mm -hmm. And he hit me and he's like, work everyone could see it too on on his timeline he's like man i knew you liked playing with them more than me fuck man like i i, I you know something to the effect like i hope i hope you don't stop jamming with me or whatever and i was like 
are you insane, man? Like I love what him and I have was was so yeah, strong. No, it was it, so there's. It's impossible for you to be more bonded to another human being yeah. after experiencing. Oh that, my gosh, right? there was nothing or no one I was closer with than Adam. So he was in New York, and I remember I was in a session. I was in a session with uh, Slaughterhouse, um, this rap group, and I was working on my album. And he was in New York, so I was supposed to see him. And the day before, we were supposed to meet up, and I see one of my managers. He's like, uh, Ames not going to come out tonight. And I was like, why? He's like, dude, I think he's going back to rehab when we go home. And I was like, why? He does, he's sober, man. He's like, he's strong as nails, man. So I hit him up. I don't hear back from him, you know. Um, continue to hit him up that night before I go to sleep. Don't hear back from him. The next morning... I have a show in New York. I'm in the studio with Slaughterhouse. And uh, we're in the middle of recording a, a song called Devil's Got a Hold of Me. And um, someone has me. Uh, it was a laptop. And it just has the news that Adam, you know. Cunning, baffling, and powerful. You know, it really is. And all the more heartbreaking when it's somebody not only that you love deeply, but but somebody that you respect for their sobriety. You know, and we forget, you know, I'm a long time sober, you know, we forget that as alcoholics, as addicts, that that's our natural state, you know. And for some people, the pain just becomes so overwhelming that it becomes the only choice, you know. I didn't, uh, I didn't know AM, but I have lots of friends that, that knew him and, and the guy was just beloved, you know, yeah. universally like beloved. It's a tragic loss. Yeah. It's, it's still difficult cause we don't, you know, all we know is he, he was, he was planning on going to rehab the following day, but I, I know there's like a history with people having one last hooray, you know, and and uh this this idea that yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go out one last time and then i'm gonna clean up and and not appreciating the fact that like it doesn't always work out so well yeah you know just because you want to go out doesn't mean that you can come back you know and it makes you appreciate and really realize what a gift sobriety is and how fragile it can be yeah yeah and then after you know we found out everything it was kind of like for me it was the question of well what was it an accident or, you know, was it? Well, the the fact that he had plans to go to rehab speaks to it being, you know, sort of balancing more towards accident. Yeah. And some kind of premeditated. It was like, was it an accident or was it the last words you said to me? Which was, you know, I want to do a bunch of drugs and say, fuck it. So for me, I think I struggled with that. Like when I was from, I still I still struggle with it a little bit. I wish I knew clearly what it was. But um, after that, it was, it was, uh, I really, it was like final destination, 
you know, it was even more survival's guilt. Like, am I supposed to be here now? Adam's gone. Um, and Adam, the strongest human being who I can't even count on both hands, how many people he got sober, mm-hmm. our friends, you know, or was like a support group for them, including myself. So for me, it was just like, damn, did he, did he purposely do this? Or was this an accident? And, you know, I, I beat myself well, I it's, up it's, over it. Yeah. But it, it, clearly he was in pain. He had, you know, yeah. he, he was in, he had some unresolved pain and, the pain became unbearable enough where drugs and alcohol or drugs became just the logical option. Yeah. And I think you can just leave it at that. You know, what happens beyond that, you know, you can't, you know, he knew that you loved him and you can't carry the mantle of responsibility for what happened. You know, you've got, you've got to be able to find a way to free yourself from that. Yeah. Yeah. There was probably about, I was a, we were on tour. We were on, I think we were in the middle of a tour. So I had a month left of tour and it was just, man, it was the hardest. We had a show that I think I canceled the show that night. Mm. Um, But, you know, for that next month, I think I probably played every show with my eyes closed. (laughs) I couldn't even like look up. It was just, you know, I, I knew too, he would want me to go out there and play. But uh, at the same time, it was just tough. Yeah. You know? Especially it was like, if it was just, I mean, a friend passing is hard enough, but a friend I went through that with passing, like the only person I could really, you know, speak to about that or kind of see eye to eye and really kind of get each other. That was, that was a tough one to lose. So how do you start to, you know, put together the pieces and and heal from this so that you can be, you know, integrated and functional? Um... I think it was just gaining my strength back again. That's what I had to do. And like I've said a couple times, like my kids were the, you know, kids, it was, it's easy for me to look at them and say, I have to be strong and, and get my strength from them and, uh, and set an example of not letting this take me down or, you know, you know, falling victim to drugs it was really easy for me to be sober after am passed away mm-hmm. so, so that happened pretty quickly after that yeah you just got sh- you, you just got shocked clean oh yeah yeah there was that was like it couldn't have been a bigger eye-opener did you just go cold turkey and do it yourself or did you go to 12 step or like how did you no the last thing i did was you know, weed was the thing I was, I was just doing very, very little, but still doing it from time to time. Mm -hmm. And it must've been maybe like a month after AM passed. I had a, I had this weird thing, man. I was recording an album and I think we were smoking heavily that day. And, and I had this weird lump on my throat that wouldn't go away to the point where I was kind of freaked out. It's like sticking my finger in my throat. I was like, what's going on? It's, I'm smoking weed. It's grown from the earth. You know, there's nothing bad. I was uh-huh. giving myself every possible excuse. Uh, and I end up going to the doctor and I get diagnosed with Barrett's esophagus. What is that like pre-cancer? Yeah. That was it. There, if there was any question, uh-huh. that was it. My, I talked to my doctor who's a, he's not my, my, my normal doctor out here, but he's a, a friend I... I've, I've known for years that lives in San Diego. I said, doc, 
he's saying I have Barrett's esophagus. He's like, Trav, this is your warning shot. Stop right now. Like, you know, do whatever he tells you. You cannot reverse precancer. Like, there's no reversing any damage that's done to your esophagus. And I was just, that was it for me. Right. It was, you know, that was the last But you were thing. able to hear it. You had the willingness, <laughs> yeah. right? You know what I mean? It's like, dude, I mean, plane crash, you know, losing, yeah. losing AM, you know, yeah. cancer in the throat. Like, come on, dude, wake up. Like, the universe is, is trying to gaslight you a little bit here. Yeah, and sometimes I think before that, with every horrific thing that happened to me, it was like, dude, this happened to you. What's the big deal if I smoke weed? You know, and it's like, mm -hmm. nah. And then, you know, like you said, it all came together. It was a plane crash. Adam passes away. Um, still that one therapist resonating, going like, you know, if... Uh, if you know, you were to die today, would you be remembered as the man you want to be? I was mm -hmm. like, well, I'm still, I'm still smoking weed. I'm, I'm not completely sober. So that was it for me. And, and it was, uh, it was so great, man. And, and I, and I felt, you know, obviously the first couple of weeks was, was weird adapting to not doing anything, just getting rid of bad habits. But even the people around me, man, I, the minute you get sober and you stop doing drugs, you stop doing everything and you're around people who do, maybe in studio environments and they go to hand you a joint or hand you a drink or hand you some pills and you say, oh, I don't do it no more. They're like, how'd you quit? Mm. And I noticed so many people were like, well, <laughs> well how'd you do it? You yeah. know, because they knew how bad I was and they knew how uh -huh. everything was in excess for me. Everything. I mean, psychotic, you know, I mean, I can't yeah. imagine the detox from oxys and, you know, coming down from that state that you were in. That must have just been horrific. Well, that was easy to stop after the plane crash because in the hospital, I woke up. I woke up during about 10 surgeries because they, not, they couldn't mm. even medicate me. Your tolerance up. was so crazy. Yeah, I'd wake up in the middle of oh surgery. My God. It was horrible. And I don't know if you could imagine the pain you feel when you wake up too. Like I I would feel and I would see tons of doctors around me and I would just swing on them. I was like, I was insane. Like there was, you know, I, I, said, I said it, I think in my book, it was like, it was sad that it took such a horrific experience like the plane crash and Adam dying for me to get sober, but it did. It takes what it takes. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, what's it going to take to get your attention? Yeah. And go, huh, come on, dude. There's a better way to live. There's a better plan for you. But you're going to have to grab onto it. Yeah. You know? So it's like all these signals the universe is throwing at you that you need to course correct. Yeah. And what's your pain threshold, you know? Yep. And now, I mean, now I don't, you know, I never I never went to a 12-step program. Uh -huh. I had, so what has it been like? What is it? Five or six years now? Yeah, it's six years six now. Years. Uh -huh. I've had great people that are in the program that have taken me to meetings. Uh -huh. um, and I've gone every once in a while. I usually go I usually go to one on the anniversary of our plane crash um, or the anniversary of Adam's passing. Mm -hmm. um, because those are days I feel like I just need some motivation. Right. Which was recently, right? Wasn't it just like a month or two ago? Which one? Seeing like the, the anniversary of AM's passing. Yeah. Yeah, and then September is the is the plane crash uh -huh. anniversary. So those times I kind of I kind of go reach out, or I just have a, a conversation. You know, like one of the producer I work with that I, I do a lot of production with is sober, and he's just great. But mm -hmm. 
honestly, is that Feldy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Feldy's yeah. great, man. He's sober. He has meetings at his house. It's, yeah, it's really he's cool. A, that guy's a cornerstone of sobriety. Yeah, he's helped so many dudes. Yeah, and, and and I like once again, I have to say, you know, being a full time father, I I get so much joy, man. That's my favorite role in life is being mm -hmm. a dad. You know, my favorite production more than any album I've produced or <laughs> hip hop song or anything, you know, is like my kids, man, just, just, uh, just being a, a, a role model for them. It's in, and being with them has been, you know, the happiest thing ever. Right. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, and speaking of your kids, I know you gotta, you gotta pick them up in a couple yeah, of minutes soon, here, yeah. which is like crazy. Cause there's so many other things I want to talk. We've been talking for almost two hours and the word vegan hasn't even come up once. I know that's insane about that. Yet. Yeah. But I can't, I can't segue to that without at least asking you, and then I got to let you go. I know, um, you know, now that it's been a couple of years since the crash and, and you have some objectivity on your sobriety and, and that experience, like, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you glean from that? That can be helpful to somebody because it is an experience that's so unique. I mean, there are so few people on planet earth that have, under you know sort of undergone such traumatic experience and survived right so does that shift your perspective on how you live your life oh it shifted everything um i was very careless before my accident i would you know i was a great father but i would still i mean to me taking tons of pills and self-medicating myself to get on planes <laughs> isn't yeah. the most responsible uh -huh. And you don't fly anymore, right? No, I don't. I don't fly. That that was the that was one thing I had to do is is after my plane crash, I said I'll never fly again. Mm -hmm. um, I'll never put myself in a situation where I feel like I have to medicate myself, and and uh, and and take myself away from my family. If the day comes, my kids want to fly, I'll fly with them, and I'll I'll do whatever they want. They're scared. They're really scared to death of flying. Mm. Obviously, because of what happened to me, and they were really close to little Chris and Che, who passed away in the in the plane, and then they're they're just as afraid of drugs because of they saw what happened to Adam. Um, so I I take a lot from it. You know, I I live every day like it's my first and last, and um, and I'm healthier than I've ever been. I'm 41 and I'm healthier now mm -hmm. than I was when I was 20 or when I was 30 or when I was 35. You know, it I've 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 got new addictions as I let go of my old addictions. Yeah, fitness is like a big part of your thing now, right? Yeah. Like fitness, like, wellness. Every time I go into Erewhon, I see you and you're scoping out like some healthy food product. Yes, you yes. Know? It's all about the battle ropes and, you know, this routine to sort of be your best self. Yeah, I replaced all the bad stuff with the good stuff. You know, um, I eat well. I'm, I'm vegan, gluten-free. Uh, I've been vegetarian since I was 15. Mm -hmm. And I became vegan right after my plane crash. Uh, I exercise every day. I just traded all the bad stuff with the good stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and I I love working out. I've directly made the connection between working out and playing the drums and applying, you know, lots of things from both to each other. And it's helped me so much. Well, they were, they seem to, you know, meld seamlessly. I mean, dr the way you drum is like athletic performance art. You know, and I can't imagine, you know, trying to do what you do without being in good physical shape. Like it is an endurance sport. Yeah, absolutely. It's an artistic endurance sport. Absolutely. 
So I gotta let you go, man. It's such a bummer. I want uh, to talk to you about creativity. I'm obsessed with unlocking creativity. I want to talk to you more about the vegan stuff and your <laughs> daily routines and all this stuff. But I do have to let you go. You've been very generous with your time. So maybe oh, I can an honor. hoodwink you to come back and we could talk a little bit more about yeah, that stuff. That would be awesome. All right, man. So thanks so much, dude. That was yeah. really oh, cool. Man. I appreciate you. your openness and and you know honesty talking about some difficult stuff. Of course. Yeah. Very cool. My man. pleasure. So uh, if you're digging on Travis, the best way to connect with him is probably your website, travisbarker.com, at Travis Barker on all yeah, the just, internet sites. Yeah, yeah, Instagram and, is just uh, Travis Barker. The book, Can I Say, uh, which I still have to read. I got to pick that up. This interview came together pretty quickly, so I didn't have a chance to read it, but I'm looking forward to digging into it. Cool. So pick that up. And uh, you have any shows coming up soon or any dates um, we are heading over to Europe for the summer. Oh, wow. So, yeah, we'll be out there in Europe. And I have... With uh, Blink? Yeah, with Blink. Cool. Yeah. Back together fun. again with the new album and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's been amazing. I think... I don't know. We're, we got nominated for a Grammy, so we'll see. I think they're still announcing oh, who's cool. performing. So, wow. yeah, who knows? Uh-huh. Very cool, man. Yeah. Awesome. And you just did Kimmel the other night, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you did... Uh, you, did you had some crazy show... Uh, New Year's with um, Steve Aoki, right? Well, no, that, I actually- was that just you solo? Yeah, I have a DJ drum routine. Um, you know, me being around, like I played with so many great DJs. Well, of course, Adam, DJ AM. Uh -huh. And then after he passed, me and A-Track did right. uh, a routine together. Then me the and Mixmaster Juicero Mike. The billboard. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I've been surrounded with the best DJs, you know, ever. And um and I've always loved DJing and scratching, so I actually have a routine and I have a residency in Vegas. So oh, you do? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so, like back to the entrepreneurial kind of yeah. approach to your career. So New I Year's mean, like was really Like as a really drummer, fun. who does that? That, you know, that's what's always been my thing is like, how do I, how do you, how do I keep creating, keep evolving and keep things interesting for myself and do what I love? And that's, that's one of them, you know, I'm taking like what, you know, being inspired by what AM and I started and just the evolution of that. Mm -hmm. so. Great talking to you, man. Yeah, man, you too. Cool. Peace. Thank you. Plants. <laughs>
Uh, thank you for sharing the show with your friends and on social media, for leaving a review on iTunes, for subscribing, for grabbing your friend's iPhone and subscribing them to the show. I'm not against that kind of behavior. Uh, and uh, for making a habit of always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. Uh, or just by typing in richroll.com forward slash Amazon, which takes you to Amazon. Buy whatever you're going to buy. It doesn't cost you one cent extra, but Amazon kicks off some loose commission change at the end of each month. That helps us keep the lights on. Uh, so we appreciate that. And of course, mad love to everybody who has taken that extra step to support the work that I do by contributing on Patreon. Uh, really cool and just you know heart heart touching that uh, that you would do that. It means so much to me. If you guys would like to receive a free uh, weekly email from me, uh, you can do that. It's called Roll Call. You can sign up on my website. Basically, every Thursday I send out a short blast, and it has like I don't know five or six. Uh, items in it, things that usually just things that I've come across throughout the course of the week. Uh, maybe it's a couple articles I read, long reads, or you know, a book that I'm enjoying, or a documentary that I just saw, or a new product, or a cause. Every week it's something different. And these are things I usually don't share on social media. And the idea behind this is just to cultivate a little extra connection and uh, you know, connectivity and community around the kind of themes and ideas that percolate up through the podcast. So uh, never any spam. I don't use affiliate links. I'm not trying to make any money off of you. This is just, you know, useful, fun information. So that's it. Uh, you can subscribe on my website. And while you're there, uh, I got all kinds of plant power swag and merch uh, stuff. I got t-shirts, tech tees, plant power stickers, signed copies of Finding Ultra on the Plant Power Way, all that kind of cool stuff. So you can check that out there. Uh, thank you everybody who helped put on this show today. Jason Camiello for audio engineering and production. Sean Patterson for his help on graphics. Chris Swan for additional production assistance and a lot of work that he puts into compiling the show notes and theme music by Analemma. Uh, thanks for the love, you guys. Uh, let's try to follow our hearts this week, and I'll be back with you guys uh, in a couple days. See you soon. Peace. Plants. Yeah.